Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Professor Guy Waters, Professor of New Testament at RTS Jackson, who is the co-editor of a new book called Covenant Theology, Biblical, Theological, and Historical Perspectives. It was published this last year with Crossway, and it's the book we're going to, going to discuss today. Uh, Guy, thanks so much for joining me today. Zach, thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here, and and I'm looking forward to hearing more about the book. But before that, uh, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Absolutely. So I serve with Reformed Theological Seminary at our Jackson campus in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, This is my 15th year on faculty, and I uh, teach New Testament primarily. Um, I also serve as academic dean of uh, two campuses we have in Texas, in Dallas, and in Houston. That's wonderful, Guy. I appreciate that. Um, and so now, as we're as we're looking at the book, um, can you can you tell us just fundamentally what what is covenant theology? What was the idea behind uh, writing a book on this topic? Sure. Well. Within Reformed theology, uh, covenant theology has been a a crucial part of our tradition in expressing what we understand to be the shape and structure of uh, biblical theology, the Bible's teaching about its its flow and movement. And uh, there have been a number of fine works done on the subject, but we were interested in putting together a faculty volume. We have uh, 40, 44 uh, full-time residential faculty. We wanted to draw from the resources within our institution uh, to offer to the church broadly uh, a survey, a statement of covenant theology uh, as it is uh, something that has been discussed biblically as it is something that has been discussed theologically and historically and practically. And we wanted uh, both the beginning student, but also the more advanced reader to have uh, a one-stop shop, as it were, Uh, not to be the last word, of course, but to be a, a solid resource of help both for study and for service in the church. Well, you mentioned uh, Reformed theology there, and Lee Duncan talks about a relationship between covenant theology and and Reformed theology um, in the beginning of the book. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us sort of what what that relationship is there. Are are these one and the same thing? Well, they are complementary of one another. So uh, there are, of course, Uh, men and women who embrace Reformed theology sincerely, who uh, would not embrace covenant theology. And I wouldn't question their commitment to Reformed theology. But typically, in in the history of the tradition, in the history of the church, 
uh, reform theology and covenant theology have gone hand in glove. Uh, what covenant theology does is to show how God in history works out his eternal purpose to save the sinners whom he has chosen from before the foundation of the world by the work of his son and through the work of his spirit. God didn't do this, of course, all in an instant in history. Uh, what we see is that his redemptive purposes are worked out uh, historically. They're worked out organically until they come to their fulfillment in the person and work of Christ under the new covenant. And all of that, of course, is uh, prepared for uh, by the covenants that precede the new covenant, where God was intentionally preparing the way for uh, Christ to come. So understanding that framework helps us to appreciate better the uh, glory of the gospel of grace. It helps us to appreciate better the work of our triune God in salvation. And it gives us the assurance that we need as believers uh, to, to trust in our God as faithful to us, as faithful to himself, and then to serve him in light of his commitments that he's made to us. Very good. Well, if, if covenant theology can, can sort of provide this framework for, for reading and interpreting the Bible, applying it to, um, can you talk to us about uh, what the biblical covenants are? Um, what, what covenants are mentioned here? What, what do we find in Scripture? Right. So we begin, most uh, Reformed theologians today, many Reformed theologians today, would, would begin in eternity by speaking of what has been called a covenant of redemption. And the covenant of redemption speaks of the agreement among Father, Son, and Spirit to save the sinners whom the Father has chosen by the work of the Son, his obedience and death, applied to them by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that covenant provides the framework and foundation for the covenants of history. There are many covenants that you encounter in the Old Testament, but really underlying them all are two basic covenants. There is what has been called the covenant of works, which we encounter in Genesis chapter 2 and is discussed elsewhere. And then there is the covenant of grace, which begins immediately after the fall in Genesis 3. The covenant of works, God comes to Adam in paradise and tells him not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And had Adam continued in obedience to God, God would have confirmed him, and not only him, but all of humanity for whom Adam stood as representative. And Adam would have entered into confirmed eternal life beyond what he was experiencing with God in the garden, and we with him. But we know, of course, that's not what happened. Adam sinned against God, God pronounced the sentence of death, and we in Adam fell into sin and death. And that's where God announces as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he is going to raise up 
from uh, Eve and her offspring a descendant, a seed, whom we know to be Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is going to stand as the representative of his people, everyone who trusts in him for salvation. And he was going to obey God where we haven't obeyed God. And he was going to suffer in his death the due penalty for our sins, not for any sins he committed because there weren't any, but for the sins that his people committed so that covenantally we would stand in Christ acceptable before God. And what Jesus does as the last Adam is he brings his people into confirmed eschatological life. What Adam should have done but failed to do, Jesus Christ has done. And that is the story of Scripture from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation. We get the vision of the consummation of that work in chapters 21 and 22. And the rest, as they say, is details. Uh, The way in which, in particulars, God was advancing that purpose to glorify his son through the redemption of sinners by covenant. That's really helpful. Well, as we as we think about Christ at at the heart of the covenant of grace, that that promise to deliver his people from their sin, and it's really getting clearer and clearer throughout the Old Testament, um, through these various other covenants leading to the New Testament. And uh, that's where I want to get to a chapter that that you've contributed here in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, as we're thinking about the redemptive work of Christ in the New Testament, there's a context for understanding his role in the New Testament. And you tell us uh, that is this framework of, of the covenant of works. Um, why is it important to understand the covenant of works with regard to the New Testament? That's a great question, Zach. I think it's important we understand the covenant of works because it provides the the framework and in fact gives us the questions that Christ and his work answers. So the covenant of works helps us to understand two things about our plight as human being, as sinners in Adam. One is that we have fallen into sin. We are guilty of sin. We are under the dominion of sin we are helpless to rescue ourselves from that plight. And no other human being on this planet can do that. The other question is, uh, God created humanity to be in fellowship and communion with himself. Will any human being, in light of the fall, enjoy communion and fellowship with Christ? And what Christ does is he provides definitive answers to both those questions. He addresses our plight as sinners through his work on the cross, and by his obedience and death and resurrection, we have in Christ the right to enter into the presence of God, uh, to enjoy fellowship and communion with him. And the wonderful thing about covenant theology is that it reminds us that this is the uh, purpose and outworking of the triune God, that our Heavenly Father wants us to be in fellowship and communion with Him, no less than the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
And in the New Testament, this gets taught especially explicitly in passages like 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul sets Adam and Christ next to one another. And what Adam did becomes the background for understanding what Christ has done to rescue us from our plight and to bring us into everlasting life. Very good. That's really helpful. Well, uh, carrying forward, uh, Guy, you have this chapter on covenant and Paul. Um, and you acknowledge in the chapter that with the word diatheke appearing not too often in Paul's letters, it seems that you know maybe covenant is not too big of a, of a deal to him, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? That's right. And that's where if you just count up the instances of the word covenant, you might be misled. You, you couldn't conclude that covenant is therefore unimportant to Paul because covenant is important to Paul. Uh, you see that, for instance, in those two passages I just mentioned, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5. And there the apostle is giving us a framework, really, of the entirety of the scripture. And uh, though Paul does not use the word covenant in either of those chapters, because he does view the ministry of Christ as thoroughly covenantal and, and uses that word in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians of the work of Christ, we're bound to understand Adam and his relationship with human beings and what Adam did or didn't do, as the case may be, covenantally no less. And then Paul helps us to understand, particularly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, that the whole sweep of the Old Testament and the New Testament is really a series of covenants that follow on from one another and build upon one another. And it's in those places that Paul pulls back the curtain, as it were, and shows us the covenantal structure of all of human history. Well, you mentioned at the end of the chapter that in, uh, in Paul, covenant is ancillary neither to his teaching nor to that teaching center, the gospel. Um, now, I want to ask about some others who we may be able to say the same uh, as we look in church history. Um, the, this book, Covenant Theology, it includes a, a large section there on, on covenantal readings of, of Scripture throughout the history of the church. What can you say of the, of the development of covenant theology in church history? Well, as with everything in church history, the church took some time to develop uh, clear and distinct views on various teachings of Scripture. And very often it was controversy that was the accelerant in the church coming to clarify and to speak with more precision about various teachings of Scripture. But we would want to insist, uh, as Reformed theologians, that covenant was not invented in the 16th or 17th century. Covenant the theology didn't spring out of the head of Reformed theologians. 
firstly and more, most importantly, we argue it from the scripture. But when you look into the early centuries of the church and you look at figures like Irenaeus or Melito of Sardis or Tertullian, you see the rudiments or basics of what will become a mature covenant theology uh, much later. And it was really at the time of the Reformation when uh, questions surrounding the gospel were so central. And because of covenant's connections with the gospel, no surprise that the reformers and their heirs set out to think clearly about the covenantal framework of the Bible and the way in which that helps us articulate the gospel in in a way that honors the the form and teaching of scripture. And you begin to see that in the 16th century, and it comes full flower in the centuries following. Well, the book is very clear on the scriptural and theological foundations of this covenantal uh, framework. Uh, and, and it's also great here to be reminded of the continuity with uh, Christians of the past, how they've read the Bible um, in this way. Um, well, I, I want to pose one final question and one that Kevin DeYoung asked in, in his afterward, and maybe you'd answer similarly. Um, what difference does all of this make? And maybe another way to ask that is, is what are you hoping readers will take away from the book? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and I think a number of things. Uh, for, for one thing, uh, we want readers to come to the Bible to read the Bible in the way that God invites us to read the Bible. We, we believe that a covenant is not something we brought to the Scripture, but something we're drawing out of the Scripture. And what it does is it helps us to see the unity of the scripture, and it helps us to understand how the various parts of scripture fit within the whole. So when you open up First Samuel, or when you come to the prophet Jeremiah, uh, understanding that basic framework of covenant theology helps you to read and to apply those passages in a way that's true to the the intention of of the divine and the human authors. I think there's another benefit that needs to be stressed, and that is covenant theology helps us to appreciate the secure foundations on, on which our redemption rests. And so when we know that our salvation has been Uh, purposed in eternity and has been wrought by the last Adam and is being applied uh, certainly by the ministry of the Spirit uh, as the outworking of this eternal covenant. That gives the believer uh, tremendous confidence to, to walk and to live before God in this world. I think it also helps us to put into perspective, for instance, uh, the sacraments. Uh, Sacraments are something that have been much argued over in church history, and I think many believers puzzle over them and set them to the side. That's a shame because God gave us the sacraments to be helps to faith. Covenant theology helps us to see how that's the case. When you look at the various covenants of Scripture, 
you see a pattern emerging. God gives signs, tangible physical signs, alongside each of those covenants. And the purpose of those signs is to point to the graces that God is giving his people in Christ uh, through the covenants that he makes with them. And so when we come, for instance, to the Lord's Supper or to baptism, we have then a framework to understand what God is trying to do in our lives with those sacraments. There's nothing magical or superstitious. What he's calling us to do is to look by faith to Christ and all of his benefits, which are held out to us in the gospel. And he gives us these signs to confirm the truth of his promises and to encourage us to faith and to fellowship with God's people, to living in obedience before him. So the sacraments, far from being something we should keep at arm's length, are tremendous helps to living before God. Well, we we could go on, but covenant theology has uh, so many implications for our reading and interpreting of Scripture, our understanding of the gospel and the way we live out the Christian life. Great. Well, Guy, I really appreciate that explanation there. And we're also grateful for for your time now, um, having explained these ideas and 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 what the book is about. Um, before you go, though, uh, maybe you can tell our listeners what you plan to work on next. Sure. So I am uh, presently uh, writing uh, a number of uh, much smaller works. This was a large work that I edited. Um, a, a book that uh, Lord Willing, um, Reformation Trust, uh, publishing arm of Ligonier, will bring out next year, uh, Christian View of Death and Dying. Uh, I've got a manuscript in that Crossway is scheduled to publish next year. It is in their short studies on biblical theology. It's looking at the Sabbath. And uh, that connects very nicely with covenant theology because uh, Sabbath is something that surfaces across the scripture and often in connection with God's covenants. So there's some other projects, but those are the the two immediate ones that come to mind. Very good. Well, those sound like good projects and we'll be sure to look out for those. Um, For now, though, thank you for editing this book, Covenant Theology. It's published with Crossway in 2020. And Guy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.